Christians need to stop listening to the world and start listening to God so the thinking Christian becomes as natural as breathing. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dr. James Spencer. Through calm, thoughtful, theological conversations, Thinking Christian offers a mix of interviews and discussions that highlight the ways God is working in the lives of his people and question the underlying social, cultural, and political assumptions that keep the church from conforming more closely to the image of Christ. Now, on to today's episode of Thinking Christian. Hey everyone, this is Dr. James Spencer and you're listening to Thinking Christian. On today's episode, we have a guest host, Maggie Hubbard. Maggie works with me at Useful to God and was my co-host on our previous podcast, Faithful and Flawed. Some time ago, Maggie had the opportunity to interview Pam Whitehead, the Executive Director of Pro-Love Ministries. She and Pam talk about the ministry of pro-love and Pam's passion for her ministry. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Thinking Christian. Pam has an intense desire to see women collide with their destiny. She calls herself a hope dealer, and she decided long ago that instead of focusing on what someone didn't do for her, she would offer what she didn't have to other women to see them empowered to prosper. Her life is truly a miracle. From conception, she was targeted for abortion. Her mother was just 15 years old when she became pregnant by a man her father brought home after the release from prison in 1973. This was only the beginning of darkness that seemed to follow her throughout her entire childhood and into her adult life. After years of abandonment, abuse, and addiction, she found herself facing a crisis pregnancy with only one option, abortion. The details and devastation following this decision are horrific. There was no relief and facing down her darkest hour while wondering what purpose she served, she began seeking the truth. She found the truth in Jesus Christ and her conversion is radical and so is her love for other women facing crisis just like she did. Pam's story can also be found in the devotional Plan from the Start by Lorraine Vela that accompanies the major motion picture Unplanned. That is a lot to unpack, Pam. You are just amazing. <laughs> Your story is amazing. And I just want to hand it over to you. I just want you to share your testimony and just your story and, and, and how you found Christ. You know, the only reason the story is amazing is because God's grace is amazing and it extends to each and every one of us. And I am a recipient of that. You know, my life didn't start out well. I wasn't conceived in hope and expectation. You know, I was an unplanned pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, to a very young mother in a very dire circumstance. <laughs> By all the world's accounts, I was a perfect target for abortion. And my mother, that was her first choice. She went to my grandfather and he said, no, you're not having an abortion. We'll support you or you can get married. But absolutely no, you're not getting an abortion. And, you know, I thank God for my grandfather for standing mm -hmm. up for my life. And that wasn't the last time that he stood up for me. You know, I entered into the world unplanned, not a bunch of fanfare. You know, no one was expecting me to be here. And then my mom had four children by the time she was 24 years old. They were very young and very, very poor. We grew up very poor. My father was a terrible alcoholic and he abused my mom physically. And when I was eight years old, he ended her life. He beat her to death. Mm. And that catapulted me and my brother and my two sisters into foster care. So we entered the foster care system. I was eight years old. My brother was five. My sister was three. And then my infant sister was five months old. 
Mm. when we were actually placed. And that experience was not ideal. We did get to stay together, which was, you know, better than not because we at least had each other to lean on, but the circumstances were not good. It was abusive and it it didn't go well. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental, emotional abuse. So when I was 18 years old, I ran away from that home and I turned my foster father in and he went to prison. But by that time I was already an alcoholic. I'd started drinking when I was 11. And when I graduated high school, I had scholarships to go to college. I was a really good student. I had a pretty high IQ. I was in a gifted program and made really good grades and had a really high capacity for learning, but I had no life skills. I couldn't imagine going to college and trying to hold a job at the same time. And where I lived was pretty close to an army post. Uh, It was right outside of Columbus, Georgia, across the Chattahoochee River in Alabama. So I was accustomed to seeing the military, you know, being around the military in our town. And I just got the idea to join the army. And so that's what I did. I joined the army and I got an education and I got a job, but I also learned how to be a really good alcoholic in the army. Mm. It was another place where trauma hit me pretty hard. I was assaulted a couple of times while I was in the army. I'm sexually assaulted once by an officer and another time by three individuals at once. So the environment was, was difficult. But for me, by this time, this was normal. You know, I've lived for 10 years in a foster home with four different people sexually abusing me all the time. And so, you know, this was nothing compared to that. Sad to say, this trauma was just normal to me. And all I knew to do was to continue to drink. And I was very promiscuous. I had married and I could not be faithful to that man. Bless his heart. He was a good man, a sweet man, but I, I was not a good wife. We had a child, and um, I and I did not want to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. But the word abortion was not in my vocabulary. Right. It, it wasn't anything that I ever considered in that marriage or in that pregnancy. I gave birth. I was gave birth nine weeks early. But when he was born, I had no maternal instincts. I had no feelings really mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm for this child. Now I'd stayed sober throughout my entire pregnancy. I did not drink. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't smoke cigarettes. You know, I did all the things I was supposed to do. It was the only time in my life that I had stayed sober. But as soon as he was born, he was put in the NICU because he was so early mm-hmm. and I was discharged from the hospital and I left the hospital and went to the bar. Mm. I immediately started drinking again and my baby was in the NICU and I'm out at the club, you know, getting drunk and pumping milk and <laughs> saving it for him. And I just, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me at the time. I didn't have a name for it. You know, again, right. I didn't have my mom. I didn't have my dad. I didn't have any motherly role model in my life. No real support system. Right. And that's a protective factor that, that like, reduces the severity of crisis in your life. And I just didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, all the trauma that, right, that you had. Been yeah. Through. And I had no one to really go to. I felt that I had no one to really go to and ask these things. And I was trying to, to do what felt, you know, but none of this stuff came natural for me, this mothering. And every time my baby would cry, I would just feel like somebody was scratching their nails on a chalkboard. 
Like mm-hmm. it was awful. Mm-hmm. And I would see these visions of me doing horrible things. And yeah, I felt like such a horrible person. You know, I'm like, who thinks this about their child? Well, come to find out I had postpartum depression mm-hmm. leading to psychosis. Yeah. And I didn't know. I was so afraid to tell anyone because I thought they're just going to come in here and take that baby right. who I didn't know how to care for anyway, you know, but who, who wants their baby taken from them? You know, like that's just a terrible stigma. It's a terrible right. thing. Right. You know, I tried to tough it out. I tried to suffer through it. By this time I'm drinking back to like, just like I was before and worse. Mm. And our marriage just didn't make it. So a year after he was born, we divorced. And in that divorce, I surrendered my rights to my child because Mm. at that point I felt like there's no way I was Mm. defeated. I felt helpless and hopeless and like a worthless human being, like something's terribly wrong with me, Right? you know, that I can't be a mom. Like this is the most normal, natural thing that a woman is supposed to be able to do. Why can't I do it? Um, And so I dove deeper into my addiction. And within a couple of months, the army sent me to rehab. It got that bad. Wow. And while I was in that rehab, I met someone. And when we were both released from this rehab, we went AWOL from the army together. And we traveled in my car across the country, writing bad checks, stealing, gambling, drinking, doing drugs, and just all these things from all the way from Fort Benning, Georgia to Las Vegas, Nevada. And we lived in my car for three months. And on that trip, I became pregnant. And this man and I decided to go and turn ourselves in. I knew I was pregnant. I was feeling sick, you know, and I took a pregnancy test and it was positive. So we come back and we turned ourselves in to to the army. And he had to go to jail because he had committed some crimes. And I was just discharged mm-hmm. with a, a general discharge. And so here I was now suddenly on my own, alone in the world, trying to find my way. And I found my biological aunt. She lived in Montgomery, Alabama. And so I went to stay with her. Thankfully, she opened her home to me. And within a couple of weeks, I got a job. And this pregnancy was different. There was something that flipped. I don't know what happened, but I was excited. I think some of it was the relationship that I had with the child's father. We had bonded in a different way, right? whether healthy or not. The healthy or not, we had bonded in a different way. It it was just different. And he was a person who saw me like as a person. He had treated me like a human being. And he was the first person who ever did that. Now you can look at all the things we did that were wrong. Those things are absolutely true, but he also was a very gentle, kind man. Right. And it was the first time in my life that I had been treated that way. Mm -hmm. And it made a huge impact on me and the way that I felt about this child and life in general. But I couldn't, I had nothing to cling to. And I needed something in my life that was more powerful than the thing that had hurt me. And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. And so for me, it was always relationships. You Mm -hmm. know, if I could just hold on to this person, right? you know, if I could just be who they want me to be, then maybe they'll stay. And so I, I, 
I always make a joke that I, I took people hostage. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't have relationships. I took people hostage, you know, uh-huh. and I had these very unhealthy habits. Yeah. Um, and so I had this baby, I gave birth and her father was in a military prison. And so I'm, I'm alone with this baby. I stayed sober throughout the pregnancy, did all the things that I was supposed to do, had a beautiful birth with a midwife. Very easy, just like heavenly experience and moved out of my aunt's house immediately because I had a job and I'd saved money and I'd done all those things and moved into my own apartment. And for 10 months, everything was beautiful. I'm taking care of my daughter. Everything was working. I wasn't on any public assistance because I made enough money to handle myself and I didn't qualify for anything. And when she was about 10 months old, her father came out of prison. And when he came out of prison, we reconciled. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, I'm back drinking again mm. and using drugs. And by this time, I developed a cocaine habit. And the next three years, four years were just drugs and alcohol and us partying and always trying to find a babysitter to keep the baby. And yep. remarkably, I was able to keep a job. That's the one thing that I was always able to do. I had this functioning habit. You know, it's like I was a functioning addict. But all that did was it caused me to look at my child's father and be like, why can't you keep a job? I can keep a job. You know, I would compare myself to him. Right, right. And within a couple of years, like he couldn't stand it any longer. He was like, I can't deal with you. (laughs) He left. So when she was about four years old, I'm alone again, you know, and I couldn't stand it. Right. When I was alone, I would, I would. Everywhere you go, there you'll be. So no matter what, I'm with myself, you Mm -hmm. know, my own thoughts, the things I think about myself, your mind. I mean, the things that I thought about myself, that was my worst enemy. Nothing that anyone else could say to me was going to hurt me nearly as bad as what I said to myself, Mm -hmm. you know, because I knew me. I knew what I had done. I knew my deep, dark, ugly secrets, the things I did that nobody else knew about to get drugs and, you know. Yeah. And so not long after he left, I dove deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. And I found myself giving my body away to get drugs in Mm. exchange for drugs. And you had a four-year-old at the time. I did. Yeah. I did. had a four-year-old. Yep. I had a boyfriend, and I say that with air quotes, you know, someone that I had taken hostage Right. Who who stayed who stayed around and we did drugs together. So there was always a party kind of going on. And I had this habit of after everyone was done partying, it's as if I was just getting started. Mm-hmm. And so everybody else would stop or lay down to go to sleep or go to bed or whatever. And I would sneak away mm. by myself. Oh my gosh. The words that you speak are creative. And I created my own world with my words. We'll be back with Pam Whitehead's story after this. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. 
Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Christians need to It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Stop listening to the world and start listening to God. So the thinking Christian becomes as natural as breathing. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dr. James Spencer. Through calm, thoughtful, theological conversations, Thinking Christian offers a mix of interviews and discussions that highlight the ways God is working in the lives of his people and question the underlying social, cultural, and political assumptions that keep the church from conforming more closely to the image of Christ. Now, on to today's episode of Thinking Christian. In the darkest of night, and go do the most depraved things. Not long after this, in the middle of the year, in June of that year, I found myself pregnant. So I've got a four-year-old, I've got one son that I'd already surrendered my rights, and he's a partial adoptee. My ex-husband's new wife adopted him. And then I've got a four-year-old, and then now I find myself pregnant again, having no idea who the father of this child is. Uh And at this point in my life, I had just got evicted from my home. Um, I was seeking out family members, because I'm in my hometown where I was born. So I found my father's family, and I sought them out, and I you know, manipulated enough where I could get them to let me come live with them. They live way down in rural Alabama, like Crenshaw County, way back in the woods. Mm-hmm. And they let me come and stay down there. My father got out of prison in August 
of that year. This was 2001. After serving 20 years of a 50-year sentence for killing my mom. I'm pregnant. He gets out, and his first fatherly duty was that he took me to have an abortion. Is that what you wanted, or was he kind of pushing you to do that? I did. No, he was only doing what I wanted him to do. Okay, okay. Yeah, he was only doing what I asked for. Right. At this point in my life, it was as if I felt like, now this isn't true, but this is how I felt. I felt like I ran the show. Mm-hmm. Like, I mm-hmm. felt like I was in control of everything. This was the, the, the pride that I had and just the bullying, the kind of anger that I had inside of me. Like, if you didn't do what I wanted you to do, then you weren't in my life. Right. So, I can't tell you how that word entered into my vocabulary. I have no idea where the suggestion came from. Mm-hmm. All I know that is, is every person that I asked, who at this point I would consider my support system, my coworkers, a couple of friends that I had who, of course, I did drugs with, and now my aunts, who were my, my dad's sisters and my cousins. These are biological family members. I'm asking all these people, I don't know what to do. What should I do? What should I do? And every one of them said, you can't. Pam, you can't. You can't have this baby. Those words drove my decision. Mm-hmm. Not that it's their fault. I take full responsibility for right, what I did. Right, right, right. But that was the echo chamber. Mm-hmm. You know, it just confirmed, it affirmed what I already believed, that I, that I couldn't do it. I never could do it. I haven't been doing it. I'm not a mother. I'm not a good mom. I'll never be a good mom. Those were the words that rang true for me. Right. And so I, I walked into that abortion clinic that day. And, you know, something remarkable that really drives me to this day is when I walked up to that clinic, there was not a single soul outside. No one um, trying to stop me. Yeah. No signs. No one to pray with you. Nope. Yeah. No. No. Whether ugly signs, yelling, screaming, praying, singing, nothing. Nothing. Just wow. Silence. And no one, you know, and I'm telling you how powerful it is to be a witness, any kind of, any witness, a good Christian witness in front of that abortion facility would, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. That's all I know right now. If you like looking back at it, if someone would have been there, right. With a sign or said, can I pray over to you, over you? Do you think that could have had an impact? I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. Now, I wasn't a Christian. Right. I was an agnostic. No one had ever preached the gospel to me. I believed there was a God, something bigger than me, Uh you know, but I didn't know Jesus. Right. The foster home I grew up in, they took me to church every time the door swung open. We were the first people in there. But it was this little Presbyterian church, and it was very much that family kind of ran the show there you know Mm -hmm. our foster family they were a large family they had seven children of their own and then they took in the four of us so you can imagine this business coming into the church you know so my foster mother was actually the first female deacon in this presbyterian church but i never once remember hearing the gospel i never once i mean we heard a lot of stories we we heard a lot of talk about missions we heard you know, we sang Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing and the doxology. And, you know, I remember all those things. But, and I remember, you know, our Sunday school teacher taking us to McDonald's and going on canoe trips and those kinds of things. But I don't remember ever hearing the gospel. 
Right. Just the All complicated, was, straight to it gospel. Yeah. yeah. The simple gospel. I remember thinking, if this is what, what God is about, like these people, the way they treat me at home, and then coming here and worshiping this God, if he is okay with what they're doing, I want no part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I get this point in my life where I'm, I'm walking down the sidewalk into an abortion clinic and no one tries to stop me. Mm. No one told me. I literally thought this was my only choice. When you looked at my circumstances, and that's what it's about, was my circumstances. I just got evicted. I don't even have a place to live. Right. I, yes, I have a job, but my car barely works. I need, I'm addicted. I need help. Like, I don't even know who the dad is. Who knew what my health was like, you know, considering the things I've been doing. And not one person, not one person offered me any alternatives to abortion. Yeah. Like adoption. No one. Yeah. Nothing. Or even, hey, you don't have to do that. Let's get you some help and yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Or, or even talk to me about now. By this time, I am 28 years old, Maggie. I'm not a child. Right. I already had two children. I was a medical laboratory technologist. I was not ignorant of what was going on in my body. But you can know something and but not have like the revealed knowledge of that thing. You know, like I understood that I was pregnant with a baby. But even at that time, I was 13 weeks and four days pregnant. Mm. That's in my, into my second trimester. Yeah. Like all that was driving me was my need. Yeah. And that's so important for us to understand when we talk about abortion. And so that day I went in, I, I, I paid the $468 to have this procedure. Um, there was one doctor there. It was a horrible situation. I ended up being stuck four times for them to get an IV going to give mm. me the medication to sedate me, uh-huh. which should have been a red flag for me as a medical professional. I should have known, get up and walk out of here. What are you doing? Right, right. No, it didn't stop me. The night before I'd been doing drugs. No one asked me. No one. You could probably still smell alcohol on me. Yeah. They didn't even check like your state of mind. And, you know, I mean, no. was it clean? Was it a clean place? I mean, what what was it like? This place was called West Alabama Women's Reproductive Center, I think was the name of it, but it's in Tuscaloosa. It was like a house. So when you wow. walked up to this clinic, it looked like a house. Oh, so wow. when you went, it, when I went into the front, it was like a living room, but it was just a bunch of chairs set up. Mm-hmm. And everyone that was, and it was dark, it was dim, just yeah. lamps, you know, lit the room, it, not fluorescent lighting or anything. And I remember... It was before cell phones were, I don't even know if we had cell phones back then in 2001, but everyone sitting in the lobby was just chit-chatting like they were in a nail salon, you know, Uh, or waiting, waiting for some regular doctor's appointment. And I remember sitting there and thinking, what is wrong with these people? But I knew what I was doing. Right. I, I remember thinking that. And then suddenly this, like thought came to me, you are these people. Mm, hmm. You are these people. Like I'm sitting here judging these other women in the room, younger women than me, because I'm a, I'm a grown woman and most of them were younger and I'm judging them. 
but I'm doing the same thing. Isn't that how we, isn't that what we do? Right. You know, Absolutely. that's hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I was such a hypocrite and I'm sitting there and I'm judging every one of them and I'm about to do the same thing. Oh, but of course my situation is different. Right. 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 So, so uh, sorry to interrupt, but like, I, and I'm sure yeah. you'll probably get to it, but I mean, did they like give you a sonogram? Did they tell you how far along you were? Did they like just go over the procedure in detail? They didn't go over the procedure in detail. Uh, the only sonogram I got was actually in the procedure room. Okay. Now I had already, I personally had already had a sonogram because I had already been to the doctor. Gotcha. I was pretty okay. far along before I made this decision. I really did linger in making this decision. I, I did not get a sonogram before they actually did the abortion. And, and back then, I don't know if, I don't believe that was a law. When they, the counseling, and again, I, I say that very, very loosely, there were five or six of us that were put into a very small room. And it was like a long table. And at the end of it, it was pushed up against the wall. And there was a very small TV there with a VCR, one of those TVs that had a VCR thing in the bottom of it. Uh-huh. Yep. And they put a, a tape in that TV and walked out of the room. We were all supposed to sit there and watch that video. Well, nervously, none of us wanted to watch that. Right. So we start talking about something that made no sense, you know, and none of us paid attention to the video. I remember doing a urine sample and getting my finger pricked for anemia. And then they put me in the room. Now, when they put me in that room, again, they tried to stick me four times to get this IV started. Mm. And by the time they got the IV started, it was just very few minutes later that doctor came in and he started the oh. procedure. Wow. And I remember him turning on that machine and it's like a, it has like a compressor on it. And so it's allowed. Mm. And then it makes this sucking sound. Mm. And I felt pressure in my abdomen and he, I felt something like, like it was like a cut. I can't explain it. It was like a, like a cut and I kicked my foot out mm. and I, he perforated my uterus <gasps> and I hemorrhaged all over the place. Oh, and I remember goodness. hearing this slurping sound, like mm. when you get to the bottom of your milkshake. Yeah. That was the sound that I heard in that room when he was performing this procedure. And I hemorrhaged all over the place. And for about 25 minutes, he tried to pack my uterus to stop the bleeding and he couldn't do it. And so they had to call an ambulance. And I left that clinic in an ambulance that day. Were you by yourself? My father was with me. Oh, that's right. Your father took you. Oh, my goodness. My father, who had just gotten out of prison. And no one went out. And so like five girls went in after me because they're trying and trying. Now, these procedures only take five minutes normally. So he's in there 25 minutes trying to stop me from bleeding. And they've got five other girls ready to go. And my dad's still sitting out there. He's like, my daughter hasn't come out yet. You know, all these other people who went in after what's going on. Right. And they put him off and put him off and put him off and wouldn't even tell him what was happening. Until the ambulance got there, the ambulance came to the back of the building, no sirens. They had taken me from that procedure room and put me on a gurney and in the hallway. And there's no lights on in this hallway. I'm in a dark hallway by myself, laying on a gurney, just waiting on that ambulance to get there. And thankfully, I recovered. Right. But you you could have died. Yes. And it wasn't until I watched the movie Unplanned, Abby Johnson's uh, story of leaving Planned Parenthood that, and now I was already on staff with Abby. 
I've been uh-huh. on staff with her for five years when I'm playing came out. I'm watching the movie and the scene where the young girl, her uterus is perforated. I won't give the movie away if you haven't seen it. But when I watched that movie and I saw that scene, it was suddenly that I, because I had minimized this experience. Right. What did you expect, Pam? What did you expect? You knew better. You know, I really condemned myself and shamed myself for it. And I watched that movie and I saw what happened to that girl. It was suddenly that I realized you almost lost your life. Right. You almost lost your life. That was so unnecessary. Right. And to this day, there's a person missing from my family. Right. Would be 20, he would be 21 years old this year. That was 21 years ago. So it was a boy. His, his, yes. I, you know, I recovered from that procedure, but my life spiraled downward. Yeah. There, uh, terribly after that. And I can make it brief. I attempted suicide several times. I entered into a homosexual relationship. I dove deeper into drugs. I was prescribed opiates after that procedure and uh, I ended up addicted to them. The yep. methamphetamine and so my drug addiction just spiraled worse yeah. and I, I found myself uh, about three years later in the most hopeless place I'd ever been in my life at one point my daughter was taken from me and put into foster care because I got into a violent altercation with someone uh, women don't do that I mean what in the world here right. I was I'd become just like my dad violence and alcohol and drugs and the thing I vowed and inner vow is I mean those words oh my gosh the words that you speak are creative and I created my own world with my words and I spoke those things over me I'll never be like my dad you're listening to Pam Whitehead's story on thinking Christian stick around for the conclusion It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Christians need to stop listening to the world and start listening to God so the thinking Christian becomes as natural as breathing. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dr. James Spencer. Through calm, thoughtful, theological conversations, Thinking Christian offers a mix of interviews and discussions that highlight the ways God is working in the lives of his people and question the underlying social, cultural, and political assumptions that keep the church from conforming more closely to the image of Christ. Now, on to today's episode of Thinking Christian. And I spoke those things over me. I'll never be like my dad. And I was just like him. Yeah. Yep. And in 2004, I found myself in a very dark place, drunk, high. I was in a condominium with 
again, I was living a homosexual lifestyle at this time. I was living with a woman. And so I'm in this condominium with um, all these other people who were living like I was. We were all doing drugs. And even there, I didn't fit. You know, no matter where I was and whatever situation I got myself in, I always felt like I did not fit. And it's because I was a poser. I was a poser. I was fake. I was synthetic. I was never really being who I was supposed to be. And I'm in this situation. I walk outside on the balcony by myself. I'm drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette. Couldn't even get high anymore. I'm trying to do drugs. Nothing is working. Nothing was working anymore. Right. And I'm standing on that balcony and I'm looking into this apartment and all these people are in there under this bright, bright light. And everything looked like it was in slow motion. And it looked like they were laughing, like, ha, 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 you know. And I heard this voice. And I know today it was the voice of God. And it said to me, this is your life. You are always on the outside looking in. Even in a room full of people, you still feel all alone. Uh Yet I am with you. And I looked around. It was so clear. And I looked around and I thought, maybe I am high. (laughs) But I wasn't. I was clear as a bell. Right. And it scared me and it angered me at the same time because it was the the deepest truth I had heard in a long time. Right. That was absolutely true. I felt all alone everywhere I went. Uh Everywhere I went. Even when you were with people, right? Yes. I always try to put myself in social situations, which meant I had to drink because I was always feeling anxious. And even in those situations, I always felt like, I didn't fit. If they knew who I really was, they wouldn't like me, you know, and so I always felt like I had to play a part. After hearing that, I left that condominium and I booked it back to Montgomery, Alabama. That was in Orange Beach and I drove back to Montgomery and that day I went to, I had overdosed on all these drugs. Even though I wasn't feeling the effects of them, I I was overdosing. I could Uh feel my pulse and my earlobes, but I wasn't high. And, um, I get back and I go to the emergency room. But before I went to the emergency room, I stopped to see my brother. My brother was at the time going to these revivals, like tent revivals. Oh, okay. In Montgomery, Alabama. He had been homeless and on drugs and we had kind of been estranged because of our drug addiction. We just couldn't be around each other. And during this period of time, it was a very small window of time. He was going to these revivals. And, you know, he had gotten religion or whatever you want to call it. And I, on the way to the hospital, I told my girlfriend at the time, you know, I was in this lesbian relationship. Right. I said, can you please stop? Because I felt like I was dying. Uh-huh. I said, can you stop and let me see my brother? So here uh-huh. I was. I've been in this situation where I hear this voice and I think it's God. Uh-huh. And then I, I said, stop and let me see my brother. I go in to see my brother. I curled up in fetal position on the floor. And he laid hands on me and he prayed over me. Oh, wow. And I believe that it was in that moment that the phenomenon of craving left me and that I was delivered from drug addiction and alcoholism because I have not had another drink or another drug since that day. Wow. And And that was April 26, 2004. Wow. I have full body goosebumps. That is, (laughs) wow. And now I, I went on and I did what I could do. You know, because I have to, I do what I can. God does what I can't. 
Right. So right. I went ahead and went Amen. on to the hospital. Yes. And I went to the hospital. I detoxed. Um, I had no insurance, of course. So they just kept me long enough to medically detox me off of everything. And it's interesting. I have my medical records today from the abortion from DCH Hospital in Tuscaloosa that shows the perforated uterus. I have my medical records from when I went into detox that shows my positive drug test. And these things are so powerful when I show them to people and they're like, you would never, ever think that or looking at you. There's no way. There's no way, uh-huh. you know, because it's a miracle that I I have all my teeth, that I'm, you know, I don't look weathered, that I'm healthy, that, you know, yeah. looking at what I did to my body, but God is good. He healed me. He delivered me and he set me free. Amen. Now, I did not serve him from that moment on. Okay. After I got out of detox, I started in AA. That was my church for a long time. Wow. I went to wow. AA three times a day. Yeah. Three times a day I would go in there and you could get, you could still get away with a lot in AA. Uh-huh. Um, they talk about a higher power. You can call him God if you want to, you know, but you could still get away with cussing and smoking and even screwing around. Nobody's going to mess with you. Right. It's not drinking and drugging. So while I learned a lot of great principles, there were also still a lot of bad, bad behaviors that I had, but I began to work the 12 steps. The part that I couldn't get over was the defects of character, which is about step six. I, you know, those defects of character kept coming up, you mm-hmm. know, the lying and control and pride and all these other things. And so a year after I got sober, my child's father came back into my life and he comes back into my life and we get married. Oh, he wow. was sober. I was sober. And within a year, we were able to have a baby. So we had another daughter named Cassidy. So Courtney and Cassidy. Uh-huh. And I was able to stay sober. But here I was again. Remember now, I was a person who... I didn't know God really, right. but I would attach myself to people and think that, you know, either they were going to save me or I could save them, but it gave me like a purpose, right? Right. So these relationships always kind of became my idol. And so now I'm in this relationship with him and I'm sober. And so any progress that I had made really in the 12 steps of alcohol anonymous kind of stalled and our relationship was rocky because my husband wasn't able to stay sober. Mm, That's hard. Relapsed. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Mm. And then in 2009, his brother was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so he's originally from Texas. I'm from Alabama and we left Alabama and came to Texas. Not long after we got here, he relapsed again. Mm. And thankfully I had support here because his family was here. So before any time that happened, I'm kind of trying to deal with it on my own, you know? Right. And this time I didn't have to do that. And his cousin, you know, I really just kind of wanted to go and whine about it. And she tells me, hey, why don't you come to church with me? And I'm like, "Mm, I do laundry on Sundays. I'm not (laughs) going to church. Right. And she kind of thought I was joking. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like, that's my laundry day. (laughs) She was like, okay. And she asked me again, and I was like, I'm not going. Like, I don't know why you're even wasting your time. And finally, I said, listen, I'll make a deal with you. You can keep asking me, but don't get mad if I say no. And she's like, okay. Basically, let's see who wins this fight. Right. And she kept asking. And finally, I said yes. And so I went to church. And I tell you something. Now, I had walked into that little church. My foster family took me in every time the doors were open. Right. 
but I never understood the scripture where the spirit of the Lord is there's liberty until I walked into this church. Wow. And immediately I knew there's something here that I've never felt before in my life. And it was freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had never known what it felt like to be free. Actually, And these people freedom. were free. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they had something that I wanted and they had hope and they had smiles in their faces and they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of possessions, but they were right. full of life. And I'm like, what kind of drugs are you on? You know, <laughs> I haven't tried those drugs. What drugs are you on? <laughs> and I know. And so I get in there and I hear this. I, it was a couple of weeks before I really surrendered, but I heard a message on Ephesians 5, which was ordering the home. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of every woman. And, you know, the man must love his wife as Christ loves the church and the woman must respect her husband. And I'm, I'm listening to these things and I'm like, man, that's it. These people got this like in line, you know, and I don't have that. Like I run my household and I'm always discontent and I'm ticked off because I'm the one having to handle the bills and handle all the decisions. And that's not how it's supposed to be. And no wonder, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that message is what led me to the altar. Wow. It was that message. I wanted family. I wanted family. Right. And I wanted it to be, I said, these people have something and I want it. And from that moment on, I began to read the word of God. And that word transformed my mind, set me free. Listeners, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us for the second part of this interview as we continue our discussion on about Pam's journey and then talk more in depth about what Pro Love Ministries is doing for women and a mother once she chooses life for her baby and how they come alongside and support her before, during, and after her pregnancy. I cannot wait to share with you all what they are doing for the world. I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the Thinking Christian podcast. Christians need to stop listening to the world and start listening to God so the Thinking Christian becomes as natural as breathing. Life Audio. Looking for ways to stay positive? Brighten your day with the free Story Behind podcast. Hear weekly short stories that showcase true joy, love, and hope. Listen now at lifeaudio.com or by searching for Story Behind wherever you get your podcasts.